this is Anna Sanchez, your host for the Psychiatric Nurse Practitioner Podcast. Today, we will be interviewing Mr. Dan Soya, an Army veteran who was in infantry and had experienced combat uh, in Iraq. And we'll be talking about his experiences regarding PTSD, substance use, and how he self-medicated uh, and how he was able to turn his life around and became resilient and grow from the experiences. He advocates for um, veterans now and he's very active and I appreciate his time. Let's welcome Mr. Dan Soya. Thank you. This is Ana Sanchez, your host for the Psychiatric Nurse Practitioner Podcast. Today, we will be talking to Mr. Dan Soya. He's an Army vet, and he will be speaking to us regarding his experiences with PTSD um, and how it all started. Thank you, Dan, for coming to our podcast today, our virtual podcast. So please. Yes, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, please introduce yourself. So yeah, my name's Dan, um, Dan Soya. I, uh, I am a veteran of uh, Iraq, in war in Iraq. I served with 136 Infantry, uh, with the 1st Armored Division from 2002 to 2006. Um, I, uh, I, I, since then, now I work in the field of PTSD. I, I manage the Georgia chapter of the PTSD Foundation of America, which provides um, residential treatment options. Um, and some other group support and peer support for uh, for other veterans, combat veterans dealing with PTSD. So it's it's a big part of my life, and um, you know my experiences going through it are something that I uh, like to share um, to hope people can can benefit from it. Thank you for doing what you do because this has helped a lot of our veterans. Um, you picking them up, uh, talking to them face to face. You know now with a mask to mask, right? with the COVID, yeah. but you, you have been on the ground, literally um, seeking people out. And you've been also helping veterans that are in vet court. Yes. So, yeah, so we, um, we, we stay busy. Uh, a lot of moving guys around logistically, uh, you know, there's, there is a, a large population of, of combat veterans that, um, you know, I, I think it's more, more, more often than not, overwhelming majority of the ones that are dealing with some kind of combat-related trauma mm-hmm. are also dealing with some kind of comorbidity like an addiction or, or yes. alcoholism or even just some kind of antisocial behavior disorder. Uh, so they end up in those places, um, jails and institutions. So that's where we spend a lot of our time, uh, in the court system, in the jail system, and in the institution, so your 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 places like your psych stabilization units and things like that, um, where where people stay for you know a week at a time, mm-hmm. um, we, we we go there and find a more long term option um, for specifically for combat veterans who are dealing with that. But yeah, we stay we stay quite busy, you know, busy in the courts. The courts meet every month, right, very regularly. Um, that's those are diversionary programs, so veterans get in trouble with the law. Um, you know, if if the conditions are right. Um, they have an opportunity to get some treatment while getting rid of those charges um, at the same time. So it works out for them, uh, you know, on many levels. But that's it's a big, you know, I think that there used to be this big focus after Vietnam on, um, you know, the the issue with homeless veterans. And, you know, the VA responded to that extremely well, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, the, The issue really is you know, there's a misconception about what's plaguing the veteran population now. I think you hear this homeless veteran, but the fact of the matter is if a veteran wants to get housing, the VA does a pretty efficient job of getting a veteran into some kind of housing unit right now. What's going on, uh, the biggest problem that that makes it look like homelessness Mm -hmm. is this addiction, alcoholism, and, you know, chronic criminal behaviors that leads to people being homeless by choice because of the addiction, you know, they can't keep anything together for any long period of time. So, so, you know, I think the problem that we're addressing through the vet courts and through the treatment and finding the guys is, is, is also one that the public isn't really as aware of as they should be of what's where, where a lot of these things are going. Cause a lot of public funds and a lot of public money goes towards things like, you know, homeless veterans and all of this. Well, if you're not providing them any kind of treatment yes. or program, you're going to turn whatever housing facility you have into, you know, a very bad place. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, 
yeah, a lot of potential there for problems. So, um, so yeah, we stay really busy, but I'm glad to take the opportunity to, to share this information. Yes, sir. And now you are, for the state of Georgia, you are in several counties now, and this program is getting bigger yeah, and so, bigger. Yeah, so we, you know, we were in the progress of doing a lot of expanding right before COVID hit, of course. Mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm. so what, what we got from COVID was also the ability to... Um, to use this, you know, virtual technology yes. that we never really had attempted before, <laughs> which has given us a lot larger of a reach. But mm-hmm. yeah, we, you know, we, you know, the two employees that we have, myself and one other employee, cover the entire state as far as if there's a veteran who needs some kind of residential option. As far as the vet courts go, uh, we cover Gwinnett, uh, most of the northern counties, Gwinnett County, Hall County, yes. and, you know, Jackson Banks and Barrow County. So we're, we're in about five counties right now. Wow, um, wow. You know, that's we have amazing. the potential to do more, but that's, that's a matter of, you know, logistics and finding the right people to help us out and, you know, rebounding from all this. Yes, yes. We all have to be resilient with this COVID. And yes, you are reaching a lot of folks. Dan and I have worked... Um, and have been working together for our veterans, um, you know, with, with the hospital system, with the local emergency room and all that and kind of refer each other. It's like, okay, Dan, I think this person needs this one. And, and you are just right there and people are thriving because of what you do and what your colleagues are doing and what PTSD Foundation is doing, the vet court so we are here um, to, to help our veterans. So let, let me put that aside and we'll, we'll go back later. Now for you, um, you were boots on the ground. Are you able to talk about those experiences now? Is it better for you? Yeah, you know, it was, it, it, it was, uh, it was never a, 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 an issue for me about having issues talking about it. I just didn't. I, I just didn't uh, really, I, I just really didn't have a, a really understanding of my trauma for a really long time. You know, I, I just, I didn't understand what it did to me and what, mm. how certain behaviors and responses grew out of that. Yeah. Um, I numbed it for a very long time, but yeah, I, I, I do feel comfortable, to, you know, talking about that and sharing on that topic as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure being boots on the ground and you've kind of told me in the past what you were doing. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, it's it's a scary time for a young male, right? You know, yeah. So you know, for me personally, I was it was uh, senior year of high school was yeah. you know the attacks of September 11th. Yes. You know? So uh, it was a particularly, I mean, anyone who was alive and old enough during that time frame can really tell. You know, uh, it's hard to explain what it was like back then. It was a very tense situation. You know, this mm-hmm. is something that most people. Most people, unless you were alive, you know, um, for Pearl Harbor, you know, all the, the younger adults and, and the kids and, and the teenagers like we were had never experienced anything even remotely close to what we experienced then. And so the reaction for me, I grew up in a military family. Uh, uh, my father, my father was an army surgeon. Um, his his father, my grandfather, was an infantry guy like I, I went. Uh, wow. he, he served in Vietnam and Korea, the Korean War and in Vietnam. And my father served in in Desert Shield um, and Desert Storm in the 90s. So I, I grew up with it, um, and it was always kind of an option for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I always kind of had it in the back of my mind. And when September 11th happened, I know, and, and me graduating uh, high school at the same time, uh, yeah, I, I, I enlisted, and I, you know, I, I, the rebellious kind of young person <laughs> in me, um, you know, I, I had an ASVAB score where I could have gone into you know, I could have chosen whatever field I wanted to choose. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to, I figured if I was joining the army, I should do army stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I joined, <laughs> I joined the infantry, you know, thinking it was going to be like a camp out all the time. You know, I was yeah. a kid. I had no, I had no real perception of what it was. My grandfather was an infantryman. I, I mean, I understood the basics, you know, being a foot soldier. Um, but you know, I, I, I knew so little about that world yeah. going in. And so, you know, at a very young age, um, you know, two weeks after my high school graduation and um, a couple of, which is coincides with, you know, actually turning 18. I turned 18 at the end of April. So uh, a couple weeks after that, I was on my way to Fort Benning. And then uh, and then from there, 
uh, on my way to Germany, and I was only in my unit three weeks. Wow. Uh, so in the Army, a total of about six months before I was sent into combat. So I was experiencing all those things at an extremely young age. And very fast. You know, I, I mean, uh, signing up and then six months later? Woo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it was, I, you know, I, I, I remember the, uh, the invasion of Iraq really kind of starting as I was going in. It was, it was just, it was kind of at the very beginning of all that. Of course, we were still in Afghanistan at the time when I'd gone in. We'd been in for about a year. Uh, but, you know, there was something about just, you know, what I had experienced in history. Mm -hmm. I kind of assumed, you know, because of what I experienced with the Gulf War and my father, I kind of assumed it would be all be over by the time that I that I got there, you know. And so, you know, six months later, and then you know, you're looking back, it's funny, right? Because you know, we're still kind of involved yes, in those. We are. Well, we're still definitely very much involved yes. in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and then you know, we've we 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 stayed another decade um, past, you know, when I left in. Uh, in Baghdad. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was a, it, it was a, a, being that young, I can't, you know, that's the one thing I still can't wrap my head around because I see, um, 18, 19, 20 year olds now mm -hmm. and to me, they're, they're very much children. Yes. Yes. And, uh, so yeah, that, that's the, that's the kind of, that's the surreal part for me. Um, you know, I think that in other ways it may have benefited me being that young. Mm -hmm. um, I don't. I don't necessarily. I, I know there's some people that have a lot more guilt associated with their behavior and actions. You know, I, I, I can easily you know disassociate from that because you know of my youth. I really don't put that in there. But um, and then also you know, not having been in a leadership position does take away some of the. Uh, but but again, you know, I, the whole time I was there, I really had no idea what was going on. Mm -hmm. I was so young and. And so I just just go in with the flow um, yeah. and the trauma, you know, the trauma that that came in at a young age was was significant. Yes. I mean, I, I think I downplayed it for many years. You know, I didn't really I, that was the life that I understood. You have to understand that. Mm -hmm. I think people have to understand that it's hard for it may be difficult for combat veterans to talk about some of their experiences, not because it's difficult to talk about, but to them, it may not be that novel or it may not be, you know, that that's. That was the life that I understood. So I didn't understand that it was that, that that it was particularly traumatic. I thought that this was, you know, my, you know, what my family did, what everyone in my family did, and and I didn't, you know, I didn't wrap my head around it until much later. And in talking about your family, uh, Mr. Soya, did did your family? I mean, generations of military in your family, did they even talk about their experiences? Because that has to do no. with. Yeah. Never. No. Never. No. Not at all. No. Um. Not real. No. My. My. You know. My father had a relatively. You know. He, he worked at a hospital during mm. his t time. He wasn't necessarily boots in the ground. My grandfather drank himself to death by the mm. time I was only five years old. So wow. I think he was. He was a boots on the ground. He was an infantry guy, uh, in Korea and Vietnam. Oh my goodness. Um, and earned earned his was in combat in both. You know, earned his combat infantry badge in both. Um. And so. I think he suffered from a significant amount of trauma, but I, you know, we had, it was never anything that was discussed. Mm -hmm. It was never even talked about as a diagnosis. No one really, no one really brought it up. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, I bet he had, he had seen a lot uh, being in Korea and then being in Vietnam and, um, yeah, he was able diagnosis. to function in a. Yeah? He was able to function in a thirty-year career, you wow. know, as an alcoholic, you know, as a as a you know an everyday using alcoholic, mm. uh, you know, and he died sober, but he he had already, you know, done too much damage to mm. his liver um, mm. by that time, but um, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, some people can power through it, and, yeah. and the effects don't. They can numb it for so long, and that's you know that was kind of the road I was on was one similar mm -hmm. was to numb the, 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 this kind of the reactions to some of this trauma. But you know, at, at the time when I got there, it was you know uh, right around the time when the um, those civilian contractors had been uh, kidnapped and wow. they you know shot they they were killed and it, everything was on TV if you remember mm -hmm. this from around two thousand three. Um, some very, and you know, you see what's going on even there on, you know, <laughs> while you're there on AFN in, you know, in the city that you're in to people that work with you, um, and you're going out there every day and then, 
you know, once every few weeks, there's someone literally trying to kill you or you have to wow. watch someone else be killed. Oh, my um, goodness. To, to experience that at, you know, 19 years old, I had my 19th birthday in Baghdad. Um, you know, I there, there was no talk of how we were supposed to process that. Mm, <laughs> I mean, yeah. there was just never the, the, the kind of early army that existed um, at the onset of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um they really had no. They, they really kind of failed a lot of people early on. Yeah. I think that they, they started to get their act together, um, you know, around around 2010. Mm-hmm. Took that late around the turn of a new administration, around 2008. I think they started to make a lot of changes. But before that, you know, there was just when we got out or we were done, there was no. There was a questionnaire, and you knew that if you filled it out the wrong way, that someone was going to give you a lot of trouble. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, that was just the way it was. If you complained about something, you know, you were going to make your life a lot harder. And I think it's still. Yeah. And I think it's still happening. The fear of uh, the stigma. You know, I think the fear, I think even then, you know, as a youth, as 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 a youth that I was, I think even then the fear was probably more, um, was, was more than the reality, right? The reality of it is I think that if people did ask for help, they even back then, they probably wouldn't have made it hard. But I think they wanted you to think that they would have made it hard <laughs> um, to at least discourage as many people as possible, because you have to understand where the other side is coming from, especially as an NCO. You know, if your job is to keep people mission ready mm-hmm. and you're you're losing guys all the time because they, you know, they think that, you know, they can get over by complaining about things. You know, so I understand that side of it. But, it, you know, it was it was a long time before. I ever, ever addressed any of these things. You know, years? It took, took years. Years, years after? Years, years. Wow. But when did it your... Was about, it was about 2012, so it was about, wow. it was about six years six after I got out. It was the first time that I ever really talked to a physician or doctor of any kind about any significant you know, issues issues i was having when when did your symptoms start after being now my 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 colleagues are still in afghanistan right now so but the action yeah. then is very different than it is now because you guys have paved the way and i'm very thankful yeah for that. you know every every deployment's different I mean, mm. there's, there's you know you never know what's going on where and when so you know it's really hard for someone to speak on what what others are experiencing yeah. but yeah so the question about what you know when i started with the symptoms um, it's hard to put a, put a finger on it. I think, I think what, I, I think that I, I tried to white knuckle it for so long and numb it, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, when, when the, the culture and the lifestyle of the army, um, and I think most of the branches, um, there is, you know, a heavy, um, you know, drinking, yes. social drinking, you know, components mm-hmm. of being in the military. Um, it's not necessarily mandatory, but you're kind of an outsider if you're not one of the guys. So I lived in the barracks. We got back and we immediately just drank all the time. You know, all of the guys there. I mean, we, you know, when we weren't, when we weren't working and for an infantry guy, there's not a whole lot of work to do if you're not training or deployed. Um, you know, we were drinking. And so I, I think it took a long time for me to, to realize a lot of these symptoms because I was um, numbing, you know, numbing them yeah. for, for so long. But it was at that time, it was around six years later that I, I really felt the need to go see a, a physician. Um, and I think it was just a lot of, a lot of unnecessary and irrational fears that I was having about, you know, my safety. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, I, I had trouble driving um, because, you know, a lot of my trauma came from, you know, near misses and roadside explosions of wow. people around us. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 I would, I would overreact to certain situations. Uh, wow. Jumpy. Edgy, you know, hyper aroused. And, and at one point, yeah, at some point it got so bad that I, you know, I used to describe it. I was, I felt like I was scared of my own shadow. You know, I would, oh, wow. I would be, I would be startled by anything. You know, yeah, like thanks. you know, I, and in an unnerving way. You know, sometimes when you get so startled and it, it takes hours to shake it off. You know, mm. because you know, you just, it, it, and that's what it was for years. You know, I, I, I. I I tried to numb it. I went to the VA and the VA, you know, being a medical facility, did what it did and tried to put a lot of medication on top of it. Yeah. And um, I ended up getting addicted to some of those medications. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that that's when it really started to spiral out of control. Um, you know, I think and that's the case for most 
most people struggling with PTSD is they're able to white knuckle it and get it together and quietly self-medicate or medicate with the help of a doctor and keep it down for long enough. Uh, but the problem is it's those medication there. tools, they, they don't work uh, indefinitely. Mm-hmm. You know, they, 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 very quickly you start developing a tolerance and then it pours over into your your social life, your married life, your work life, and then that's when it explodes. And that was wow. the case for me, and that's I think that's the case for so many others. Yeah, and and, and you're speaking to a lot uh, of veterans um, um, that are going through or have gone through the same situation. And I think with your PTSD foundation, the Zoom groups that uh, you're you're manning with your peers. Um, I think that that camaraderie is back in helping other veterans that, yes, I've I've felt these things, Uh, you know, a lot of triggers when you're driving in the freeway that I'm freaking out because I thought that was a roadside bomb and and things that people touching me behind me. I cannot uh, I cannot uh, what do you call this Um, shake that off. And I see when I uh, when I talk to veterans, when I uh, do my assessment on them, they sit where they can see the door because they don't want to be behind the door and not knowing what's going to come out. So a lot of triggers, a lot of triggers. Now, you've you've mentioned about the medication and it, it, it really didn't work for you because you you had issues with the side effects and um, hospitalized for the symptoms that you were getting as well uh you know it took a really long time for that first hospitalization but after after the first one they just kept coming and coming but yeah i you know i um i i guess it was after one, per- I, I would go through episodes. It was mm-hmm. very episodic to me as well. Mm. Uh, you know, and that was kind of the crushing part of it. You know, I went through college and law school and was practicing law in Knoxville, yeah. Tennessee. But like, I, I, I always had this idea in my mind, even when I was doing well, that I knew there was going to come a time when I would have another kind of episode and I would be kind of worthless to, to the world. And mm-hmm. it was always so scary because I, I just didn't know what the after aftermath of that is. But yeah, um, you know, I the, the the hospitalization came after one of these kind of episodes um, of hyper paranoia. You know, that's usually how it came out for me, and, and, and just you know, not taking care of myself for days. Um, I I was hospitalized at one of those. You know, go to the ER and mm-hmm. at the VA, and then wind up you know at a place like Peachford, which people may be familiar with, but like a, a psychiatric stabilization. Yeah, unit. yeah. Um, and then, you know, did my first long-term residential, um, you know, treatment, um, after a 21 day stay on the psych ward at the VA, um, you know, and and that, that all comes along with, uh, you know, over self-medicating. I think that's how most people got there. I got there on a, on an overdose, but it was for me, for me, the sad thing is, and this is kind of sad about the state of affairs with the VA was that. The reality of it is I had tried so many times to go to the VA and tell them how serious, how seriously messed up I was, right? That mm-hmm. I needed help. And mm-hmm. it, they never, you know, I, they always would, you know, I think sending someone to Peachford to stabilize for, for three or four days is wonderful, but that's not the answer to someone who's coming back to you repeatedly, mm-hmm. you know, with, with, with issues like that. I think, that, you know, inpatient should have been a, a scenario a long time ago for me but it took so long to get there. And when I did end up there, it's because I had told my wife, I said, you know, uh, I'm going to take all these drugs. And when you can't wake me up anymore, then take me to the ER. So, you know, with the intention of trying to get someone's attention, right. Wow. I was trying, I was trying to let them know, like, look, um, you know, I I really need help. And, uh, it's, it's weird to say that now, but that was the only way I could think to do it. And Mm -hmm. so I had an over intentional overdose and, ended up spend, spending four days in the intensive care unit. Oh, my um, goodness. Yeah, and then started at 21 days. And it got their attention, right? It worked. Um, mm. They kept me for almost a month on the psych ward and then sent me straight from the psych ward to the, the domiciliary program at Fort McPherson. Um, and, you know, that, that program was good, but, you know, I could even tell at the end of the 30 days that I needed something longer. And I think that's really, for, for people that are dealing with, long ongoing comprehensive issues related to PTSD. I think the only 
the only answer is long-term um, residential treatment. And when I say long-term, we're talking six months to a year, um, if not more for some people, uh, of some kind of structured program followed by maybe some kind of, you know, living uh, transitional program. Mm -hmm. But for, for me, you know, that was the only thing that was going to get me going right. And it was just, I was not taking care of myself. I was living, you know, living day to day. Um, and yeah, so I, I, a number of times I ended up, and that's how I ended up at, at Camp Hope after another kind of stint and getting in trouble with the law and getting into fights. And, um, you know, I'd wind up, you know, facing something that I had to stand up for, either getting in trouble in a fight and being in front of a judge. And it was just like, I got to get, get somewhere. Yeah. And uh, the good thing I think about Camp Hope was that, you know, for, for places like the VA's residential programs in the state of Georgia, there's a pretty significant wait time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yes. sometimes it can be as long as 12 weeks. Yes. Um, so and then the other thing is you have to be, you know, in that wait time period, the, the veteran has to be keeping in contact with the VA and, you know, to go into these outpatient appointments or they'll lose their slot. And, you know, guys in that condition aren't really capable. I wasn't. I say that I wasn't capable of doing that. So I'm glad that there are options like Camp Hope. Um, you know, it's a little less structured as far as the medical side goes. We have limited resources compared to the VA, but what we lack in, you know, some of our staffing resources, I think we make up for in our ability to act very quickly because there's less, you know, bureaucracy involved. So, yeah. um, so yeah, that's, that's how I ended up in that situation at Camp Hope, which is the residential treatment facility that the PTSD Foundation of America operates, uh, you know, not too many years ago. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I was a resident there, continued treatment through the VA. And, uh, yeah, like you said, the, the communal aspect of it, the groups um, played a huge role for me because it was, it was you know, building a, a kind of a tribe of, of like-minded individuals mm -hmm. who had like, like experiences and really letting each other know that, you know, uh, it's okay. You know, it's okay to feel that way and it's also okay to get better because I think that, you know, a lot of guys get caught up in their diagnosis and they hear, you know, hey, I've got, you've got PTSD, and uh, and then that's their life, right? They mold around yes. uh, a mental illness. So yes, and and you're you're right about the tribe, uh, the feelings of being in a group, and that feeling of universality um, that everyone here had experienced the same things that I've experienced, and went through the same issues but you were ready the bottom line was that you were ready to say hey i need help and it took a lot of processes a lot of bureaucracy oh, yeah. it, i mean i you know there was there was there was yeah i mean there's a good great gap of stuff that i had to you know just skip i mean it was years of, of really suffering mm. um before i could get to that conclusion mm. um of needing help and that's why <laughs> it, it it takes it takes some of these some of these outlying factors like judges and and courtrooms to yeah. force a lot of individuals, including myself, um, to 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 kind of kickstart kick that recovery. And that's why I think these programs are very important. I mean, I see what yeah. they do every day, but like like the veterans treatment courts and all that is it is 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 telling veterans like myself that you know one the kind of common thing of it. It's not. It's not your fault what happened to you, yeah, right? You know, yeah. your, but it is your responsibility to, to fix to the best you can. You know, that we that we ha there's an o there's an onus or a burden upon us as veterans to try and get better, and, and uh, I, I think that uh, you know it it takes a lot of community support mm -hmm. and a lot of nudging in that direction to get. You know, I, I hate to see the identity of a veteran being this victim, right? Or or, yes. or you see it in news. You know, a veteran that that Green Beret who who shot people and committed a crime, and they first they start throwing away, throwing around. Oh, he had PTSD. To turn, you know, that that I, I don't want that to be the, the the kind of face of what PTSD is because it's not. I mean, it's it's no. not reality. I don't no, think. No. But but uh, but I think that you know, if if we continue to act out and and and, and you know, use alcohol and you alcohol and drugs to to, uh, to combat you yeah. know self-medicate some of these symptoms that mm -hmm. you know the, the kind of the message we're putting out there to the community is is not a great one for veterans so i, I think it's 
it's uh it's a burden upon us to to really help our fellow veterans out and to to make ourselves you know active members of our community yes yes and i think that that that's who you are now you've come full circle and and going through that and those phases that you've had uh you know with a self medication uh drinking whatever you've gone through was because of the PTSD but you've owned them and said okay now i'm going to give back to the community and that's what you're doing um as far as medications what medication did you did they prescribe to you do you even remember it's been I, a long time at ago some, at some point in time i was on just about a dozen different kinds i mean what was very problematic for me obviously um early on early on they started prescribing me benzodiazepines mm, mm. um and that created a big problem because yeah. they 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 you know the thing about benzodiazepines is they work incredibly well right but they have so many other problems that yes. come with them and they're they're extremely dangerous so yes. you know they 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 you know they they address the problem very well you know they they did for me it, you know it got rid of a tremendous amount of my anxiety but the things that came along with it were yeah. obviously more devastating yeah. um but there was others you know they you know uh you know at some point all the different um you know, serotonin tweaking medications, the 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 long term anxiety medications like buspirone and, mm -hmm. and things like that, and the you know the Seroquels and the Trazodones, and, <laughs> and it, you know, at one point there was a litany of medications. I you know I never, I, I I never wanted to hang my head on medication. I know that that was kind of, and I think it's important for some people, but I think with PTSD we're dealing with a lot of, you know, spiritual, social. Uh, you know things like that there's there's a lot that has to be done through through a therapeutic you know like yes. talking yes a talking I agree. cure I, i think that you know i i leave the the medicine side to professionals <laughs> but i think that it is by itself i think that it's it, it it's almost worthless you know it it has to be partnered or with... it has to or, or it has to be partnered with some kind of deep you know therapy and group support I agree. I agree. I always tell my patients it's pills and skills, right? Initially, we need that acutely, and you've been you've tried all those medications, but the therapeutic part, that uh, therapeutic alliance with your therapist or group therapy, that is key, and a lot of lifestyle uh, changes as well. Now I know you exercise a lot now as well. You've gone back to that kind of yeah. threw us off with covid because a lot of the gyms have closed uh but you are are uh doing what you can as far as Yeah, that that's a full it's like we we teach the guys at Camp Hope and and it's it's a complete overhaul of of kind of just the way we've been doing things and once you start in that direction I mean a lot of the guys that go through our program you know that's where that that's what they latch on to is mm -hmm. physical fitness spirituality you know yes. 12 step fellowships all those things that's the real successful people um you know they learn to take care of themselves learn to eat right yeah. uh you know there's a lot that goes into it you know a tremendous amount of uh, you know when we say you know ptsd is being a moral injury you know mm. and so a lot of these guys have been kind of living these crazy rambunctious almost criminal lives for some time you know um You know, living on the edge is thrill-seeking part yes. of, of trauma. Yes. And uh, yes. There, there is something about trauma that's addictive, you know, like, like that, that thrill-seeking behavior. That high. And yeah. the idea that, that that life is very transient itself, you know, that, that every, that, you know, we're going to die anyways. And so, you know, people throwing caution to the wind. Mm. And so there's a whole remakeover that's got to happen to someone who's who's lived that kind of life for a long time, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh And yeah, taking care of yourselves on all levels is of the utmost importance. In in living on that edge, uh, you know, you you want that thrill, you want to go go go, but then what's the, you know, the flip? It's you just the way it. you're you're used to operating. Mm -hmm. You know, operating in chaos. You mm -hmm. know? The quiet suburban lifestyle can be very dangerous to someone who who spent their <laughs> time in a high high paced environment for years doing jobs of tremendous importance. You know. And being trusted. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I think about this even at that young age. I think, you know, I was walking around at the age of 18 with a machine gun in, in a major yeah. city, you know, metropolis in in the Middle East. And I, at 18, you know, could tell any grown adult civilian there what to do, right? You know, mm -hmm. like I have 
I have this weapon and I'm walking around the streets and I'm telling grown people, you know, after I just left my parents' house six months ago, (laughs) um, you know, I mean, just wrap your head around that. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's insane. How do you switch someone that's grew up with that kind of mentality and that kind of, it's not necessarily even the power. It's just that kind of, you know, experience in life Mm -hmm. to come back and then change and then, to go back to be like I was sitting in a classroom again, yes. you know, in, yes. in school being treated like a child once again, after you just went and did something, you know, in, incredibly adult. Mm. Um, mm. And, and I think, you know, I think that lo- a lot of our uh, uh, service members who are in that transition, talk to me about that process where you just said, you know, going there at 18, telling people what to do with this, with this big gun and then coming right. back to the right. United States. So that's, you know, the, 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 so, it's, so, it's so common, you know, thing. If you're an enlisted, particularly in the enlisted in the military, they yeah. get in the military, and then you've got this opportunity to get school, right, go to college. And so a lot of veterans are trying school. And I did. I did well in school. You but did. it was incredible. I did well in school academically. But it was inc- I was did not fit in at all. Uh-huh. I couldn't stand being there. Yes. I uh, you know, and I I finished a, a seven year degree in in five and a half years because I I was so addicted to to going to school and and like just wanted to be done with it because I felt like I was going from being an adult back to being with people with people my age who had no idea what like, you had just no gone idea through. How the world- well, I just I thought they didn't know how the world worked, right? <laughs> I thought because. I had experienced, I, I had been pulled out of this matrix and saw the real world, right? You know, what's really going on outside the, the comfort of the United States. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, I felt like I, like my opinion was somehow more valid than everyone else's. And that, that kind of, it, it kind of had a chip on my shoulder, right? You didn't experience what I did. And that, and that, that does not make for someone who can be very social, right? <laughs> if you If you have that opinion of yourself that you're always right and that someone else is always wrong, and that, you know, your experiences made you a more valid human being. I think a lot of veterans go through that. You know, they, they don't want to socialize with yeah. civilians because civilians don't experience. And Very I think that different. that's to our own detriment, right? That's mm-hmm. our own detriment to ostracize us from, from the society that we kind of, you know, <laughs> grew up in and, and are a part of. So, and, and that yeah, isolation it, would start again, being uh, because nobody can relate to what I'm going through right now. And right, I mean that's the that's the the isolation, the isolation key. I think pays two parts, right? It's that part. It's not wanting to. It's it's not understanding civilian culture and society. Just not wanting to be a part of it because it doesn't make sense to us. Um, and then the other part is you know embarrassment. Just not wanting to be seen as the jumpy guy or the overreactor, right? Mm. You have one or two episodes where you overreact or, you know, you, 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 you get angry when you shouldn't or, or you know, get, go off on someone because they spook you. Uh, you know, you, you want to avoid that. Yes, you know? that irritability and, that and agitation uh, and being on edge and, and hyper arousal. It's embarrassing. You know, it's yeah. embarrassing. I mean, people are aware of that. You know, these are proud people yes. um, you know, who served and, and to be kind of, weakened uh to a certain point or or for some period of time crippled emotionally is is very difficult it's hard not to be in that control right you were able to control the environment you were in uh being there in the deployed environment this is what i'm gonna do and now you cannot control your your own emotions your own feelings well you know it's all i mean also you know you know, you're in the military, you're told, mm-hmm. every, you know, when to feel, how to feel, <laughs> where to feel it, you know, when and to there's, eat. Something, there's something relaxing about that, right? You yeah. know, and, and, and you don't have that anymore. And, and, and so many guys just write out, you know, I, I'd like to see, I can't remember, I'd heard some figures, but the attrition rates for, you know, people attempting college with the GI Bill is, is huge, you know, mm-hmm. you know, people typically don't go in there with the tools that they need. And so there's exactly. room for so much growth in the field of, you know, transitional care. You know, there, there's, I've heard some programs talking about having programs attached to colleges, right? How cool would that have been yeah. to have some kind of program that's with the school so we can take guys in, bring the attrition rates up, right? What are we doing? We're, we're saving money for the government. Cause why would we want the government to waste money on half degrees? Right. 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 So, uh, and, so and there's a lot of room. 
There, there's a lot, and I will be. I'm talking right now to the University of North Georgia to speak with the faculty and to continue that program. Like what you're saying, how yeah. does the professor uh, would relate to somebody like you as a student who's been deployed and going back to school, and how do they relate to you? So that is very important, and that is a, a big step so that these attrition rates will you know, get better. So, and I know you also, uh, PTSD Foundation have also partnered with Gwinnett, is it Gwinnett Tech? Uh, we've, yeah, we've worked with a few universities uh-huh. and, the, and the student, and the student, um, the student veteran students, right? Yeah. The veteran yeah. And I'd like to see those, I'd like to see those, I mean, a lot of those programs that we, they're, they're you know, there's no incentive for the veterans to participate in SVA really, other than you know their own personal wanting to. I think that there, if we could find other ways to get you know veterans to participate in those groups, somehow incentivize them, um, you know, uh, to participate, because it, it would have been it would have been a lot better for me had I done mm. something like that. Okay. But you know, something we that have we can find put... a way to encourage people. Just making them available sometimes isn't good enough. You know, we have to. I think you know really encourage people to participate in these things. Again, reach out to those veterans, right? And how, yeah. how they even would relate um, with their skills in the Army or the Marines, the Navy, National Guard, whatever it is, Air Force, and how that can translate to their leadership abilities. How, um, I don't know, driving a tank, how does that even relate to being in the civilian population? What kind of yeah. skills, yeah. right? Yeah, not a whole lot for most of, for for a whole for a whole huge body of the combat arms guys, right? There's just there is not, and even for the ones who go in the medical field, you know, the lower enlisted folks. You know, my wife was a corpsman. Uh, you know, spent five years working in a naval hospital. Um, when she got out, she got her medical tech certification to do the same job in the civilian world, and everyone wouldn't hire her because she didn't have any job experience. Right? Mm. They don't look at they don't. Mm. They don't look at the military as job experience because there's no direct, right? There's no direct correlation, right? You're a corpsman. Well, what does that mean? You're a medic. That doesn't, there is no, there is no real medic in the civilian world, right? Wow, wow. You know, medics do a lot of stuff that nurses do in, in the civilian world. They're not just techs and, and things right? of that nature. But, yep. um, so yeah, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to, to find a way and that can be incredibly stressful for a lot of people dealing with other things at the same time. Mm-hmm. So we've got a lot of work to do, Mr. Soya, to reach out yeah. to this uh, big hospitals and companies and how we can use um, them uh, and utilize their skills into the civilian population. There um, are some programs out there you may have heard of them. There's a Psych Armor, you may have yes, heard. They, yes. they specifically do training um, for institutions like that. So mm-hmm. for healthcare facilities, rehabs. Um, and I, you know, I think that's always a good thing, right? You know, to, to, to broaden the understanding because, you know, we had to go in there and train over at Laurelwood, one of the hospitals around here, just kind of try and train some of these people how to understand when we say, Hey, yeah. is this veteran a combat veteran? Like they didn't even know what that means. They, you know, they honestly said, you know, what well, you have to explain exactly what that means. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, did, did that veteran deploy to a combat zone? What does that even mean? You know, yes. What's the definite, you know, being yes. able to understand you know, when someone is, is, is seriously communicating about having some issues with PTSD or when someone is just saying that to get, to get, you know, access to better resources. Yeah. Um, you know, just, you know, we get called out a lot of times and, you know, we can tell immediately, oh, this guy's not even a real better, you know, so <laughs> helping the, helping the caregivers understand, you know, what's out there and what's really going on. Um, you know, can go a long way. And, and we've communicated, uh, through, uh, I guess collaboration with the DD two fourteen. Hey Anna, where is this? Uh, Dan, this is what you need. You know, Dan, do I need yeah, this? I mean, lot, you know, Back and it, forth. It should be relatively simple. Mm-hmm. Um, but guys who are going through traumatic time periods or, or dealing with addiction and things of that nature aren't the best, obviously, at keeping their documents yes. in, the, in a handy place. <laughs> so we do have to. You know, we do want to vet everyone because that's important to, yes. to our, you know, the people who are providing the money for this. So we, 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 we receive, you know, everything through private donations. So, you know, our, our donors want to make sure that their money is going to help 
combat veterans. And so we, we vet through that. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot of back channels of getting that talk documentation and paperwork together. But, um, at the end of the day, we can always find a way to get it done. And, and again, that, uh, situation where you vet that veteran, is he really a, a combat vet or was he, well, I've had patients that say, yeah, I was in the military, but they cannot even say which branch they were in. <laughs> you know, we've had those stories. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, there, there's a lot of that and it's, and you know what I like to do? Sometimes I'll have people that'll work with me in this field mm-hmm. and they'll get offended or angry at some of that, you know, what they might call stolen valor mm-hmm. or even with guys who are, who are actually in, but love to, um, love to just tell tall tales about what they did and what they experienced. Yeah. What I try and tell everyone is that person is a sick person too. Yes. You know, the, the, the person who is lying about, their service, their military service is just a sick individual, you know, and then we, we have to treat them, treat them as such and to, mm-hmm. to bully them or, or to hate, hate them because they've done this or yeah. get aggressive or angry is, is completely illogical, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to someone who's, who's, you know, that's a sickness. And yeah. so, um, yeah. so we understand it. We just have to watch out for it. Yeah. Watch out for it and make sure that we have the correct resources for them as well right and yeah exactly to have to have those options available to everyone so we, we have people come to us and look you know we decided combat veterans to us means someone who de- deployed to an active combat zone which is pretty pretty vague i mean there's a lot of room for there's a lot of wiggle room in there mm-hmm. but there's still a great number of people that don't qualify for treatment at our facility so we always try and partner with other organizations and groups that might uh, cast a wider net, so to speak. Yes, yes. And we have a lot of resources such as the vet center, uh, the emergency room, your social workers, your psych nurse practitioners, um, other local hospitals. And uh, you and I have worked together and have um, uh, attended the Vetlanta uh summit yeah the Q, you know every that's, quarter you know, that's the next step that's yes. the next step for guys yes. who are getting better is to start engaging in some civic organizations and i you know i think what vetlana and other organizations like to do is they uh they have a, a voice um mm-hmm. that's heard by very important people in the city um, legislatures and, and stuff like that and so i think the the obvious next step for me you know once i started making some improvements in my life was to to get involved in my community Yes. And as a veteran, I think you know, veterans organizations fill into that. Atlanta is, you know, made up of veterans from Atlanta's Fortune 500 companies like UPS and Coca-Cola. And so they have wonderful free events with wonderful food, and, and we're hoping. <laughs> well, we haven't had one. We haven't had one since February. Yep. So yep. you know what time frame that was. Um, but it's gonna um, be a year now. Wow. Well. <laughs> yeah. So networking summits and events don't translate well to zoom so we've tried to do them but they're you know they're they're all right they're nice but it's it's nothing nothing can substitute for the real thing it's it's very different because you and i the face-to-face interaction is key uh in really talking to the folks that are in need and giving the resources that's how we find those other you know those other team players to help fill those voids when we when we run up against a situation we don't know where to put someone so yeah so what events like that are for now um it's it's been very nice to talk to you uh with with all of these information that you've shared with us what are you um most grateful now uh mr soya in your life what's the where's the resiliency coming from the gratefulness uh you know just the, the opportunity the opportunity to really um be a father to my kids you know you know I I I really didn't I was on a path not taking care of myself that uh I was I was not there for them or going to be able to be there for them Mm. so that that's where my gratitude comes in I mean one thing that we've gotten out of COVID is I've gotten to spend a lot of time (laughs) with the kids a lot more than I was prepared for yeah um but but at the end of the day, you know, I'll look back on that with fondness, I know. So Yeah, um, yeah. You you've pulled out yourself from that situation, you know, that diagnosis, PTSD, uh, other mental health diagnosis does not define you, but you've come out of it and being resilient and and now giving back to the community of veterans uh and helping them uh and, and learn from that. Yeah, that is huge. 
Well, I thank you for saying that. Wow. Yes, that, it's, it's a passion. It, it is, and it shows, really, when you talk about uh, what you do, uh, when you really, hey, wh- what do we do now? What's the next step for this veteran? And you're pulling out resources and calling people. I think the strength and resiliency shows in what you do, Dan. I appreciate that. I feel the same way about you. That's why it's a pleasure working together and doing these things. Yes, we will continue to work together. We'll continue to make these changes. And the more we talk about these issues that our veterans face, I think the more we can act on them and uh, pull things and, hey, we need this, we need that. And we'll make it work. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate your family. I appreciate what you do. Thank you so much for having me. You have a good one and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. You take care. We'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. See ya. Nurse Practitioner Podcasts is a weekly podcast where I share with you my passion in the field of psychiatry. My hope is to build a community where we can have empathy and compassion for those struggling with mental health conditions. Find me on Instagram at Anna Sanchez underscore psych underscore NP and at Psychiatric Nurse Practitioner and subscribe to my podcasts. Thank you. The Psych Nurse Practitioner podcast does not constitute for a medical or psychiatric advice. This podcast is not intended to replace professional psychiatric assessment. The ideas expressed in this podcast do not reflect the position of the speakers, authors, and affiliated medical and nurse practitioner organizations. Sanchez is a dual board certified as a family and psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. She has a private practice clinic and specializes in telepsychiatry in the state of Georgia. She is the founder for Hope Center for Veterans, which is a nonprofit organization that increases positive outcomes for service members. She currently serves as a medical officer in the United States Air Force Reserves. Her passion is in the care of those who have mental health conditions.